So in your book, Boys Adrift, you identify five factors that are contributing to the fact that boys are behind today. And boys are behind today across the board in school, grades, college graduation, employment. And there's a general trend of a failure to launch in young men. And we see the downstream effects of this. Men are more likely to be depressed than ever before, more likely to be addicted to drugs, alcohol, porn, video games, and they're more likely to commit suicide. So this is a really serious issue and why I've so been looking forward to speaking with you because I think your book really paves the way and gives us a roadmap for what's gone wrong, but also what we can do to bring back healthy masculinity and help young boys become healthy, productive, and fulfilled men. So I love the work you're doing and I'm looking forward to this conversation. Now for everyone back home, when you started researching uh, this book and you published this book in 2009, so you were seeing these patterns much earlier and I think things have only gotten worse. So back then when you decided to write this book, what were you seeing that was cluing you into the fact that there was a bigger issue here. So absolutely. So uh, I grew up in Ohio and I, I attended public schools, kindergarten through 12th grade. And I remember the honors ceremony at my public high school back in 1977. Uh, it was all boys, everybody on the stage, all the students getting honors. There were very few girls, almost all of them were boys. Uh, the award for poetry went to a boy. The student newspaper award went to the boy who was editor of the student newspaper. His name was Andy Borowitz, incidentally, and he went on to become, yeah, he's had a great career. He writes a humor column for the New Yorker magazine called The Borowitz Report. Uh, he was one year ahead of me at Shaker Heights High School. Uh, the editor of the yearbook was a boy. They were all boys. And a lot of people were writing about that and were concerned about that in that era. Among them were Myra and David Sadker, who wrote a book published in 1994 called Failing at Fairness. And it was all about how teachers call on boys and ignore the girls, and all the valedictorians are boys, and, and, and the girls do much less well. That was the reality. I mean, this was not a guess. They had uh, all kinds of data from their observations in the 70s and 80s. So then in 19, I went to, I went to, undergrad at MIT. I earned my MD and my PhD at the University of Pennsylvania. And I started my own practice, a family medical practice, just outside Washington, D.C. in 1990. And throughout the 1990s, I began to see something which was very strange. I would find families where the daughter was a star and earning straight A's and captain of the varsity soccer team. And her brother was a goofball who was getting B's and C's and failing Spanish. And I thought, my first thought was, geez, what's, what's, what's wrong with suburban Maryland that the boys are such losers? Uh, but then as I began to look into it more seriously and reached out to colleagues and spoke to researchers, I discovered that this, and, and indeed looking back in my hometown in Shaker Heights, Ohio, uh, that in 20 years from the late 70s to the late 90s, a lot had changed and, and boys had flipped. Incidentally, throughout this discussion, it's important to keep in mind that this growing gender gap with boys falling behind girls is not happening because girls are doing better. It's happening because boys are doing worse. Uh, so I 
was curious about what was going on. So I wrote my first book, Why Gender Matters, uh, published by Doubleday in 2005. But then I, I, I really focused in on the boys issue. And I wrote my second book that you mentioned, Boys Adrift, published initially in 2007. A soft cover edition came out in 2009. And then I, I wrote another updated edition, came out more recently. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, the gender gap with boys falling farther and farther behind their sisters, as you said, across a very wide range of parameters, is not primarily because girls are doing better. They're not. It's primarily because boys are doing worse. Let me just quickly give one piece of information along that line yeah. that illustrates what I mean by that. So way back in 1980, the National Endowment for the Arts here in the United States surveyed a large sample of teenagers, coast to coast, demographically representative, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, et cetera. And they asked them, what do you like to do in your free time? And they were especially interested in who's reading for fun, who reports that they read books for fun in their free time. Well, in, in 1980, uh, girls were somewhat more likely to read for fun than boys were, but only somewhat. It was a small difference. Then more recently, they went back and did the same survey again. Same questions. What do you like to do for fun? Do you read for fun? But the gender gap has gotten much larger. In the words of the researchers who conducted this work, Mark Byerline and Sandra Stotsky, they said the gender gap has become a chasm, quote, unquote. Girls read, boys don't. That's a direct quote. Reading for fun has become a marker of gender, gender identity. Girls read, boys don't. That's a quote from their report. That's not because girls today are reading more than they were in 1980. It's not, that's not true. Girls today are reading less than they were in 1980. But boys have stopped reading altogether. The gender gap has grown not because girls are doing better, because boys are doing much worse. So right, right. as I... Uh, read more and learned more and spoke to the researchers conducting this uh, investigate these investigations uh, that was the motivation for writing uh, my second book boys adrift but it was grounded in my firsthand experience as a family doctor seeing so many families where the girl was the star and the boy was a goofball which was would have been very unusual in the 60s or 70s but was very common by 2000 and I think you're pointing to something here of, uh, you know, the law of unintended consequences, where we try to push girls ahead. I'm sure that some of the programs, you know, were successful um, and we do see more women uh, college graduates. So there are positives, but the unintended consequences were that we really uh, feminized schools. You're implying that a big part of the decline of boys is due to the efforts to promote women. I would say it's because we have created environments for boys that kill their motivation. And it's not so much in pushing girls forward, but it's in creating environments that are much more girl-friendly. So that's, that's how I saw it. Yeah. Uh, so uh, what, I, what I heard a moment ago was very much the argument uh, that Christina Hoff Summers makes in her book, The War Against Boys. And Christina, uh, I've shared with a podium with her on, on a number of occasions. She deserves the credit for being really the first person to write about this in a big way back in 2000. Uh, 
and to call attention to the fact that the things had flipped. That uh, just six years earlier, Myron David Sadker had published their book, Failing at Fairness, documenting right. how badly girls were doing in schools. But that was based on data from the 70s and 80s. Christina published her book, or the first edition of her book, The War Against Boys in 2000. Uh, and she was really the first to call attention to the fact that, hey, that's just not true anymore. Boys are now lagging behind girls. And she asserted that the decline in boys' achievement was due to a conspiracy by left-of-center liberals led by Hillary Clinton. Uh, now, um, Hillary Clinton has accomplished a lot in her long career, but but she's not that well organized. Uh, and the decline <laughs> of boys is not due to a left-of-center conspiracy. It's not even due primarily to efforts to promote girls. Uh, the evidence just doesn't support that. Uh, the decline of boys came about because of a bunch of different things going on. And the changes in school occurred because good people with good intentions put in place policies that had the unintended consequence of disengaging boys. So, yeah, right. uh, one of the five factors is changes in the school. Schools have changed a lot compared with 1970. And those changes have had the unintended consequence of disengaging boys. Uh, but it was not primarily because of an effort to advantage girls. But, but uh, as I said, because good people with good intentions put in place policies that had the unintended consequence of disengaging boys. So what are yeah. those policies? One example here uh, right now, we have a lot of snow on the ground in Pennsylvania. And I grew up in northern Ohio. Uh, near Cleveland. We get a lot of snow, lake effect snow. And I remember attending my public elementary school, Lomond Elementary School in Shaker Heights, Ohio. Uh, in the winter months when there was snow on the ground, uh, during lunch and at recess, we'd go out on the playground and we'd throw snowballs at each other. And the teachers would come out and join us, uh, students against teachers. I remember Mr. Albers was a great shot. Get your right in the forehead every time. <laughs> And those are some of my fondest memories of elementary school was the uh, playground uh, snow fights, snowball fights. Well, today, if two kids are on the playground throwing snowballs at each other, you can be certain in the United States and in Canada uh, that a teacher administrator will say, what are you guys doing? You're not allowed to do that. You got to wait till after school and go somewhere else. No throwing snowballs on school property. That's never allowed. Why did that happen? It was not because of an advent, uh, any attempt to advantage girls. It wasn't because of any malice toward boys. It was because of liability. Uh, look, in, in 1960, if two kids were throwing snowballs at each other and, and one of them sustained a serious eye injury as a result of a thrown snowball, the parents didn't sue. Uh, today, if two kids are throwing snowballs at each other on a school playground in the United States or Canada and one of them sustains a serious eye injury, it's pretty likely the parents will sue the school, the principal, the teacher, and anyone else that the attorney can find. Uh, that change in the liability climate occurred in a relatively short period of time, between about 1976 and 1984. Suddenly, Americans started suing people they never used to sue before, like doctors and schools. And, uh, you know, I was a grown-up during that time. I remember the newspaper headlines and the magazine covers liability crisis, malpractice crisis, as all of a sudden, Americans started suing people they didn't used to sue. Uh, the same thing occurred in the hospital. 
you know, 1960, if a, if a young patient, if a young healthy patient died unexpectedly in the operating room, the parents didn't sue. They didn't. Today, if a young healthy patient dies unexpectedly in the operating room during elective surgery, it is guaranteed the parents are going to sue the surgeon, the anesthesiologist, the hospital, and anyone else the attorney can find on the chart. Interesting. And schools had to change because of the change in the liability climate. And the result was many schools who said throwing snowballs is not allowed, that throwing the snowballs is not permitted, zero tolerance policy for throwing snowballs. And that had the unintended consequence of disengaging boys. Boys doing things that boys have always done, throwing snowballs at each other on a school playground, pointing fingers at each other, saying, bang, bang, you're dead, drawing pictures of weapons. Drawing, boys doing things that boys have always done now gets you in trouble. Uh, you know, a lot of people have written about this growing gender gap with boys falling farther and farther behind their sisters. Uh, Richard Reeves had a book last year called On Boys and Men, which got a lot of attention. Uh, Kay Heimowitz had a big book a few years back called Manning Up. And the subtitle is basically how the rise of women has led to the decline of men. And uh, in all these books and mine as well, we always begin by documenting that there is a growing gender gap with boys falling farther and farther behind their sisters. And then you have to ask and answer the question, why? Why are boys falling farther and farther behind? Well, Christina Hoff Summers said it's a left-wing liberal conspiracy. That's not true. Kay Heimowitz and Richard Reeves give, a, give an answer. They assert, so Kay Heimowitz, in her book, she documents that young women under 35 with no kids at home now earn more money than young men under 35 with no kids at home, which is surprising. And it's a big difference, 20% more on average. A young woman compared with young men. Why is that? Well, it's because the young woman is now much more likely to have earned a four-year university degree than her brother. About 60-40. Young women graduates of four-year universities now outnumber men by about three to two. And so the young woman is more likely to be working a job that requires a university qualification, while her brother is literally uh, pouring lattes at Starbucks. Uh, And so... Why are young men doing less well? And I'm going to quote from Kay Heimowitz's book. I've got this quote committed to memory because I do it uh, very often, the opening of my Boys Adrift presentation. She said that young men are less motivated because they are, quote, uncertain about their role as providers in the global marketplace of the 21st century, end quote. In other words, she argues that 50 years ago, a man expected to be the provider. And so he He figured he'd have to work hard and have a good job so he could say to the young woman, hey, I can be a good provider, marry me, we'll have a family, you will lack for nothing, uh, she asserts. And and today, uh, boys and young men see the girls are doing as well or better than they are in school, as well or better than they are at the workplace. And so, Kay Hamowitz concludes, uh, young men are uncertain about their role as providers in the global marketplace of the 21st century, and that's why they are less motivated. One thing we all agree on, Uh, Everyone who's written on this topic, everyone who's written a book on this topic, we all agree that the cause of the gender gap is a lack of motivation, that Mm -hmm. young men are now less motivated than their sisters. But, of course, the question then is, why are they less motivated? So Richard Reeves, Kay Heimowitz say they're less motivated because they are, quote, uncertain about their role as providers in the global marketplace of the 21st century. And I know that they're wrong. They are wrong. How do I know that? Well, unlike Richard Reeves or Kay Heimowitz, I have visited over 500 schools 
not only in the United States, but in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, England, Scotland, etc., Mexico. And so I was visiting a school in the United States, elementary school. And of course, I'd worked out with the principal the format for the visit. We were going to start, I was going to talk to the principal in the office here about her concerns. And I was going to visit some classrooms, meet with the students, then early dismissal, going to lead a workshop for teachers in the afternoon, speak to parents in the evening. So it's the beginning of the day, and I'm first period of the school day, and I'm sitting in the principal's office, and in walks this seven-year-old boy, and then uh, another boy, eight, uh, and 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 I've talked to talking to these boys, first, second, third grade boys, and before long, there's nine of these boys in the office, all boys, and I, I pride myself on being pretty good at striking up conversations with seven-year-olds, so I ask him, "What are you guys doing here? What happened? We got in trouble." What'd you get in trouble for? Teacher saw me and Jake throwing snowballs at each other uh, before we came in. Uh, another boy says, our teacher said, draw a picture of anything you want. And I drew a picture of a rifle. And I got sent down here because zero tolerance. Uh, I said, another boy, he says, me and Brad got in cover. We were pointing fingers at each other saying, bang, bang, you're dead. So then I asked him, what do you guys think of school? School's stupid. School sucks. I hate school. School's for girls. So why don't you like school? I've never had a boy say to me, well, I'm uncertain about my role as a provider in the global marketplace. <laughs> They've never said anything like that. They hate school because school has become unfriendly to boys. And it became unfriendly to boys, not primarily because of an effort to boost the achievement of girls. It became unfriendly to boys because of concerns about liability and school violence. People responded in ways that were rational, but which had the unintended consequence of disengaging boys. And again, a lot of people have this kind of helplessness. Well, there's nothing we can do about it. There's actually a lot you can do about it. And I have seen schools that have turned this around with zero money, doesn't cost anything, and created a school that's friendly to boys without making it unfriendly to girls. Let me give you an example of what I mean. So St. Andrews is a school in Aurora, Ontario. So this is north of Toronto. And they got a lot of snow. But they have a rule at St. Andrews. If you want to throw snowballs, go to the football field. The throwing of snowballs is prohibited anywhere on campus except on the football field where it is allowed. And on the entrance of the football field, you'll see a basket of goggles. You want to throw snowballs at each other during free time, during recess, you put on your goggles, you go on the football field, and you throw snowballs to your heart's content. Inbounds versus out of bounds. You create a space where the throwing of snowballs is inbounds. And right. that's a great idea. I first I visited St. Andrews literally 20 years ago, and I have since shared that strategy with many schools. Now, some schools in the United States they're really concerned about liability. So they've had, they've required parents to sign a waiver, indemnity. The parent has to sign a form saying, if my kid's injured throwing snowballs, I hold the school harmless. I won't sue. That's fine. You have to do whatever you have to do to, to protect the school. But don't prohibit the throwing of snowballs. Don't outlaw. Because the unintended message, when you outlaw the throwing of snowballs, the unintended message you're sending to that boy is, your kind doesn't belong here. You're not welcome right. here. That's the unintended message many boys are getting that school's not for me. 
And so academic achievement becomes unmasculine. It's another strategy we've learned. Throw ball, uh, throw ball, snowball throwing contest. Okay, we just had a big blizzard. So a week from Monday, PE instructor is going to set up a target. And all the kids, grades three, four, and five, every kid is welcome to sign up, third graders, fourth graders, fifth graders. And we're going to have a contest. You're going to stand five feet away, and you get three chances to throw the snowball, and you're, you're paired against another student. And whoever hits it more times advances to the next round, whoever doesn't sit down. And at the end of the day, we've got a grand champion. And that's how you begin to change attitude. And the boy who last right. week said school's stupid now is asking parents for permission to stay late after school at school to participate in the throwball snowing contest. That's how you begin to change your attitudes. And, and when you do this, we found uh, the majority of kids who sign up for the snowball contest will be boys, but you'll get plenty of girls. Uh, some boys will not participate. Many girls will. You can make school boy friendly without making it unfriendly to girls. And these are the kind of little things that cost nothing that can transform your school. I've seen it. I've been involved in it. I can share stories of schools uh, worldwide, actually, that have seen the performance of their boys soar. Uh, and, you know, I actually took a five-year sabbatical, uh, 2008 through 2013. I sold my medical practice to my associate, and I spent five years just concentrating on visiting schools and sharing this because I was, I was so excited. I was like, hey, we can change this. Look what we've learned. And I met with uh, school leaders and district administrators and elected school board trustees. And it was such a disappointment because nobody was interested. Nobody cared. That's the bad news is that the good news is, yeah, we have strategies that cost nothing that can turn this around, that can boost the achievement of boys as well as girls. Gender-aware instruction in the co-ed classroom boost achievement for both boys and girls. Uh, but the bad news is nobody cares. Nobody's interested. That's Indeed, a real in many, shame. many public school districts in the United States and Canada, I will tell you that merely using the words girls and boys can get you labeled as a bigot. Uh, and, and the elected school board trustee will say, hey, we know that gender is just a social construct. There's no reality to the term girls and boys. The only people who use those terms are, are uh, bigots and Republicans. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, we don't use those words. We, used, uh, we, we don't say boys and girls line up. We say scholars, would you please line up? Uh, right, we, comrades. We don't use the term, we don't use, <laughs> we don't use <laughs> the term boys and girls. So very little interest in uh, public schools in North America uh, in this in gender aware anything in making school friendly to boys. You brought up so many really important points here. First of all, you know, we go, we're going back to this word motivation. And I think it's really important because what you're talking about of the fact that so many public schools are uh, gender blind, as they like to call it, right? They like to equalize and neutralize gender. And I think by doing that, you forget human nature. You forget, you know, that we're created male and female and that we're motivated by different things. And 
motivation is this mysterious thing. You know, people are constantly trying to chase it and increase their motivation to, you know, increase their productivity. Uh, and it's deeply connected to personality, right? Because what motivates us is basically our personality, right? The fact that I'm motivated by one thing and someone else is motivated by another. And it's the same for boys and girls. You know, there are differences in motivation uh, across personality traits, but there are differences in motivations across gender. And boys are built differently. And, you know, you're talking about snowball fights and people at home listening might be thinking, how, how does that have to do with uh, the fact that my boy is uninterested in school? The fact that school isn't associated with a place where you can also be yourself and boys need roughhousing. You know, they need the competition. The moment that you turn the snowball fight into a contest, uh, that motivates them, right? Their drive kicks in. And without that, you know, if everyone's getting uh, effort trophies and ribbons, then there's no point to it. And you have shown that one of the things that motivates boys today, unfortunately, is in school, but it's things like video games, right? Winning on a certain video game, a really difficult level, and then showing off to your friends is much more... Um, much more helpful to your status among the boys than getting an A plus, right? So tell well, us I, about the second factor of video games. I do want to uh, just add one more thing to the first factor before yeah, we move of on course. to video games. And because if anyone is interested in this and wants to approach their school board, mm -hmm. you've got to be balanced. You can't just say, hey, boys are falling behind. Let's, let's, let's help the boys. Because across the Western world, there is a political divide and people on the right of center are concerned about boys and people on the left of center are concerned about girls. And if you say, Hey, we've got to do something about boys falling behind in many school boards, you are stepping on a landmine. And I saw this, I spoke to the elected trustees of the Toronto school board, the largest school board in, in Canada and the sixth largest in North America. And the, uh, the director uh, in the United States, we would say the superintendent, but in, in, in Ontario, the term is the director of the school board, Chris Spence, had invited me because he was very concerned about boys. And so he had these initiatives to promote the achievement of boys. And he, he hired me to come and speak to the board about why this was a good thing. And the hostility was immense. And one of the board trustees said, look, 90% of the wealth is still controlled by men. The great majority of the polit politicians in leading roles are still men. More than 90% of Fortune 500 CEOs are men. So explain to me exactly why we need to be so concerned about boys. I don't see it. And, and the wow. hostility was palpable. Uh, and, and that's what will happen if you just go to your school board and say, we need to do more to help the boys. Don't do that. If you care about this issue and you want to improve things, say to the school board, we need to improve the achievement of boys and girls. Look, I understand where this came from. I've been studying this issue now for over 30 years. Uh, look, girls were disadvantaged and remain disadvantaged in subjects like physics, computer science, and engineering. And so 30 years ago, there was a notion, hey, let's pretend that gender isn't a thing. And, and that <laughs> will boost achievement for girls. It didn't work. If you look, okay, so in 1987, I got good numbers on this. 
from the United States mostly because that's where I do most of my talks. So in 1987, you look at what high school students took the advanced placement exam in computer science. And you find in 1987, it was 66% boys, 34% girls. Last year, who took the advanced advanced placement exam, because there's more than one, but who took the, the high-level advanced placement exam in computer science, it was 80% boys, 20% girls. So on that parameter, what proportion of high school students taking the AP exam in computer science are female? We've lost ground. We've gone from 34% in 1987 to 20% last year. The best way to get girls excited about computer science is different from the best way to get boys excited about computer science. If you right. ignore that, if you pretend that gender doesn't it matter, you disadvantage girls as well as boys. The best way to get boys excited about Emily Dickinson and Jane Eyre is different from the best way to get girls excited about Emily Dickinson and Jane Eyre. If you ignore that, you end up with boys who think Emily Dickinson and Jane Eyre is for girls. If you understand gender differences, you can break down gender stereotypes. and You can have more girls excelling in computer science and in AP physics. You can have more boys excelling in English and Spanish and poetry. So if any of you are interested in trying to break, in trying to break down the stereotypes and improve outcomes for both girls and boys, and you want to approach a school board, you've got to make it balanced. You can't just go in there and say, we're worried about boys because you will fail. That's been my firsthand experience. I think a lot of parents today are also looking at alternative uh, solutions for schools because of you know, the ideology that has creeped in in the last years and this general coddling where you know a child uh, who's, I don't know, five years old uh, got a boo-boo at school and then the parents got this full report of you know, all of the events that <laughs> took place. A few words for parents. Yeah. Uh, choosing the right school for your son, a good place to start is who are the high achievers? Ask to see the honor mm -hmm. roll. Uh, the honor roll should be roughly 50-50. If the honor roll is 90%, 80% girls and 20% boys, that's a school that is unfriendly to boys. That's a school where boys regard academic achievement as unmasculine. You're looking for a school where boys are as motivated to achieve as the girls are. There's plenty of schools out there that can meet that criterion, but that's a good, that's a good, you know, on a one day visit to school, how do you determine if this school is boy friendly? Will my son thrive here? Ask to see the honor roll. Who are the students achieving academic honors? There is no innate difference in intelligence between boys and girls. Boys are just as capable of doing well as girls are. They have to be motivated. Does the school understand right. how to motivate boys? Is the school friendly to boys? Look at the honor roll. That's a good place to I start. think also another thing to look at is, are there any male teachers? That's another factor where yeah, more and more teachers you. are... Uh, no, you I don't, don't, you don't see you. that? I don't agree because I have seen schools where all the teachers are women and the boys excel. So Richard Rees in his books of Boys and Men, he's really big on that. But he presents no evidence to support his claim that more male teachers will boost uh, achievement for boys. Maybe boys don't need male teachers, but you would agree that they need some sort of male role model. And if they don't have that in their vicinity, 
it's going yeah, to be very that's, difficult. That's the fifth factor, and we'll get. I hope we'll right. Get to so that. we'll get but, we'll get to that. But, but the, it doesn't have to be a teacher. I have seen many schools where all or almost all of the teachers are women, and the boys are thriving. This the boy needs a school where that leaders know how to create a school that's friendly to boys. Women can do this. Some of the best teachers of boys are women. Some of the best teachers of girls happen to be men. And some of the men who choose to teach elementary school are not what you would call manly men. Uh, that's, uh, uh, there's been an exodus of men out of elementary education. There used to be more teachers in elementary school than there are now. Uh, and just because a, a man is a man doesn't mean he's a boy-friendly man. He may be an, a gender atypical man. And, and some of these men who are kindergarten teachers were themselves bullied and victimized by other boys uh, because they didn't like football. They'd rather uh, dress up in a sparkly uniform and do ballet. And um, now they're teaching kindergarten and they are not gender typical men. Uh, and this, an and they are point. not at all comfortable with boys throwing snowballs uh, because they, those boys remind them of the boys who victimized them. That male teacher had snowballs thrown at him by the bullies when he was 12. So uh, just bringing more men into the classroom is not the answer. And it's not necessary. We can create boy-friendly schools with women. I've seen it done. Yes, yes, absolutely. I, I definitely I definitely agree that it doesn't have to be a man, but we just need to understand what boys need and that women can create that kind of environment too. Uh, but it definitely needs to be uh, friendly to uh, you know the emerging uh, masculinity in boys. Yeah. So on video games, which yes. is where most boys are turning today, what's going on there? Yeah. Are video games good? Is that, do you have anything good to say about video games in terms of developmental health? And why are so many boys turning to these games late at night instead of yeah. doing anything else? So when I speak to parents about boys adrift and the five factors and we come to video games, the first thing you need to do, I found, is to help the parent to understand what a modern video game is. Because a lot of parents, when they think about video games, they're thinking about uh, Pac-Man. Uh, they're thinking about the games that they might have played 20 years ago. Uh, and they are clueless. And I say, you got to watch a, a skilled teenage boy playing one of these games. Uh, the parents have never heard of RDR2. So RDR2 uh, stands for Red Dead Redemption 2. Uh, is huge. Okay, so Avatar, for example, the movie Avatar, the most successful movie, earned more money than any other movie in history, uh, uh, earned uh, almost $300 million in its opening weekend. It, oh, excuse me, it earned almost $300 million total. Uh, RDR2 earned over $600 million in its opening weekend. In other words, in terms of dollars earned, RDR2 is way bigger than Avatar, the most successful movie ever. But most parents haven't even heard of it. They don't understand what it is. It is a life. So you are Arthur Morgan. You're playing in the West in 1899, the Western United States. Very peculiar period as the Wild West is kind of transitioning to being law and order with police and things like that. And, and, and you can... Uh, steal a horse, 
but then how you treat the horse. You know, if you're nice to the horse, it'll be nice to you. If you're mean to the horse, it's going to run off. Uh, and and everything you do is kind of, you could go into a bar, which is absolutely authentic, created with the uh, uh, assistance of historians down to the tiniest detail. And you can play a game. You can play darts. And it's a great dart game. You can spend hours just playing darts against other men in the saloon. Um, and it'll take, but if you're focused and concentrated on achieving the missions, it's going to take you about 40 hours to achieve all the missions. And when you accomplish that, it's a tremendous sense of achievement. And if you are the first in your group of friends to achieve that, that will greatly raise your status in the eyes of other boys. If you get an A and instead of a B in Spanish, you probably don't even want the other boys to know that. So <laughs> it, it, it is a world of, of, of achievement. And if you work hard, you can win. So PlayStation had an ad a few years back where the actor is speaking directly into the camera saying, who are you to be ordinary? Who are you to be average? You are called to be great. Uh, wow. and, and, uh, and, and then he, he charges into the PlayStation world and, and, and things are exploding and, and, and you whose name should be spoken in, in, odd tones and weird whispers and and you know be great and so many boys have this desire to be the greatest to be you know everyone wants to achieve uh, i talk in boys adrift about the will to power uh, a mm -hmm. phrase coined by by nietzsche david and and yeah everyone wants to be in charge everyone wants to be number one but Nietzsche correctly points out that what he's talking about is where does that drive rank relative to other drives? Most girls, most women want to be liked. They want to have friends. Um, but for some boys and some men, the will to power matters more. They'd rather be number one than have friends, than be liked. They'd rather be feared than be loved. And these video games get that. And if you work hard at the video game, you can be master of the universe. If you are willing to slaughter the civilians, you can be king of everything. You just put in the time, you put in 40 hours, and you will be master of the universe. And the school offers nothing like that. They don't even have a concept of what boys want, many of them. And so the motivation has shifted away from the real world of the school in the workplace to the virtual world of the video game. And that's what parents don't understand, that, that the danger of the video game is that it shifts motivation. So very quickly, I'll give you a story, true story. Uh, mom confronts her son and says, you know, what's the story here? Uh, 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 you, you're not working. You don't have a real job. Uh, I want you to go see Dr. Zach. So he was not happy about that. <laughs> so, uh, you know, um, uh, I'm trying to set up a conversation, start a conversation with his boy. I said, uh, you know, tell me about yourself. He said, I'm level 120. Do you have any <laughs> clue what that means? I said, yeah, I believe that's a reference to World of Warcraft. It means that you have reached level 120 in the online multiplayer video game Impressive. World of Warcraft. He said, it means I'm the best there is. 
There is nothing <laughs> beyond level 120. I'm Guild Master. Do you know what that means? I said, yeah, I believe it's another reference to World of Warcraft. It means you're master of a guild in World of Warcraft. He said, I'll tell you what it means. It means there are people in Johannesburg, South Africa. There are people in Singapore. There are people in Liverpool, England, who worship me because of what I've accomplished in the game. I said, yeah, but um, in, in the real world, uh, if I'm not mistaken, you're 32 years old, you live in your parents' basement, and you don't have a job. He said, okay, so I hear what you're saying. You're saying that accomplishment in the meat world is more important than accomplishment in the, virtual, in the, in the real world. I said, okay, well, if by the meat world you mean the real world, uh, yeah, I think that's a pretty fair statement of, of my position. It was not a productive conversation. As near as I can tell, and I'm not only a family doctor, I'm a PhD psychologist, but as near as I can tell, this boy is perfectly happy in his cocoon with his 55-inch flat screen and his 400-watt subwoofer. He told me when the mortar round lands nearby, books will fall off the bookshelf because the subwoofer is that powerful. The room will shake. Um, wow. uh, he's perfectly happy. His parents are freaking out. The parents are like, he has no skills. He has no skills. I bet. Uh, and what's he got, what's going to happen when we're gone? He, he literally, he's living off of, he's completely parasitic on us. Uh, but he doesn't care. He's perfectly happy. Uh, so, uh, I, t I say to parents of teenagers, don't think he's going to grow out of the state. Uh, because I'm seeing men in their thirties who are perfectly happy spending their lives in front of a screen because the screen is that good. So that's so interesting. I used to play World of Warcraft when I was, uh, I don't know, 13, 14, 15. And I loved it. I would, you know, on the weekends, just wake up uh, with a bowl of cereal in front of the computer screen and, you know, play for hours. But I outgrew it. <laughs> and at some point, you know, it really... Uh, didn't have a hold on me anymore. It wasn't interesting anymore. And what you're saying is that some of these young men don't grow out of this, right? Girls outgrow it because most girls want mm -hmm. connection in the real world more than they want to be exactly. guild master. But many boys are perfectly happy and the games have gotten so good uh, and so fast that for many boys, they, they, they get that sense of achievement. Uh, yeah, um, I still remember Guildmaster is an impressive feat. <laughs> so I understand. I understand where he's coming from, but it really uh, is a replacement for, you know, progress and growth and uh, feeling like a man uh, and feeling like you matter and like you're significant uh, and like you're high status and that people uh, respect you. Well, it's again, amazing how, Adrift, yeah. you know, we've got lots of research, lots of research on the effects of playing video games. And I'm not saying you need to prohibit it for most boys, uh, but you do need to limit, govern, and guide what your kid is doing online. And again, the evidence is very concrete. Uh, no more than 40 minutes a night on school nights, no more than an hour a day on weekends, and your minutes do not roll over. So if you go three weeks <laughs> without playing video games, it doesn't mean you're allowed to binge for seven hours on a weekend. That is binge gaming, and it's harmful. Limit, mm -hmm. govern, and guide what your kid is doing online. And, and the, the guidelines are evidence-based, and you can do this. You, the parent, can do this. Right. And there's another factor here of, you know, boys playing into the night, and their parents aren't aware, and then they're sleep-deprived, and yeah. then they can't focus. Yeah. So no video game console in the bedroom. Uh, the video game console <laughs> needs to be in another room of the house, 
and the parents need to lock it down after nine o'clock at night so that kids can get a good night's sleep. You know, and as a family doctor, mom brings her son into the office. Another quick story. Mom brings her son into the office. He's been to the child and adolescent psychiatrist who's diagnosed him with attention deficit disorder, put him on Vyvanse. Uh, but ma- but now the kid's got no appetite and he's got palpitations. And mom wrote an article I saw, wrote, she saw an article I wrote for the New York Times about the dangers of the medications. So she brings him to me for a second opinion. And I say to the mom, I say, does your son get plenty of sleep? And she said, oh, yeah, we make sure he's in his bedroom, 9 o'clock at night, the latest, wake him up at 6 o'clock the next morning. So that's nine, nine hours. That's, that's plenty, isn't it? And I say to the boy, do you have a video game console in the bedroom? He says, yeah. And um, I said, what were you playing last night? Ah, uh, GTA, Call of Duty. How, how late were you up? Oh, like one thirty-two. He's going to bed at 2 in the morning. He's trying to get up at 6. He is sleep deprived. Sleep deprivation right. perfectly mimics attention deficit disorder of the inattentive variety. There's no counter scale. There's no questionnaire that can distinguish the kid who's sleep deprived, who, who's not paying attention because he's sleep deprived, from the kid who's not paying attention because he truly has ADD. And the mom's like, yeah, but the Adderall, the Vyvanse was so helpful. Uh, yeah, well, what's Adderall? What's Vyvanse? They're, they're amphetamines. They're speed. They compensate for the sleep deprivation. Yeah, he's doing a lot better on the amphetamines, but the appropriate remedy for sleep deprivation is sleep, not schedule two amphetamines. Uh, and he's sleep deprived, and he's taking amphetamines, and he's jittery and has no appetite and palpitation. Get the video game console out of the bedroom, lock it down after nine o'clock at night. Uh, and he was able to wean off the amphetamines. He's doing fine. Uh, your job as a parent is to make sure your kid's getting a good night's sleep. That means no devices in the bedroom. At 9 o'clock or 9.30 at night, the very latest, you take the phone, you take the video game, you, and there's no video game console in the bedroom. You take the phone from your kid and you shut it down and you put it in the charger, which from now on will be in the parent's bedroom. This has to be your call. And, and the same goes for girls as well. No phone in the bedroom. Because I can tell you, as a family doctor, many, 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 many families now with good parents, and by good parents, I mean parents who love their kids, nevertheless, boys staying up past midnight playing video games, girls staying up past midnight scrolling through TikTok, uh, and both these kids are sleep-deprived. This has to be your call. It is not reasonable to dump this choice, whether or not to have the phone in the bedroom in the lap of your 14-year-old. What's he supposed to say tomorrow in school when your friend say, when his friend says, hey, I texted you last night at midnight. How come you didn't answer? Is your 14-year-old supposed to say, well, researchers have found that sleep deprivation in adolescents is a major risk factor in the etiology of both anxiety and depression? That's ridiculous. <laughs> you can't expect a kid to talk that way. You have to allow him to say, hey, my evil parents take my phone every night at 9 o'clock. Won't they have it back to the next morning? It's your job. And again, this is the major, a major focus of my book, The Collapse of Parenting. Uh, because many parents now are like, one parent said to me, I said, you got to take your daughter's phone at nine o'clock. And the daughter said, yeah, you know, I hear what you're saying, but oh, she'd totally freak out if I took her phone. I, I just, I can't do that. Parent unable to do their job. It, it's not reasonable in this culture in, in 2024 to expect your kid to say, no, I'm going to surrender my phone voluntarily because I don't want to be disturbed in the middle of the night. 
That's not happening. The parent has to exercise some authority, but a growing number of parents are unwilling, unable to exercise their authority. That's the focus of my book, The Collapse of Parenting. And I think you're touching on an important point here where a lot of parents today are trying to be their child's friend and mm -hmm. they're really afraid of using any authority. So what do you think about that? So in The Collapse of Parenting, I have a book title, a chapter title, Enjoy, about the importance of doing fun stuff together with your kid. But don't be confused about your role. You're not the best friend. You're the parent. A best friend cannot command. A best friend cannot say, I won't allow you to eat ice cream right before supper. Only a parent can do that. A best friend cannot say, I'm taking your phone at 9 o'clock so you can get a good night's sleep. A friend cannot do that. There's any number of kids out there who can be your kid's best friend, but they cannot be the parent. That's your job. And you can't be confused about that. And, and um, uh, you know, over my career as a family doctor, I've occasionally, on a few occasions, a handful of occasions, been involved as a consultant or a, a healthcare provider in a handful of cases of sexual assault. In one case, my only role, ER called me uh, after midnight about a patient I knew well, a 15-year-old girl who was in the ER. She had been sexually assaulted. But they weren't asking me to admit or even to consult. Uh, the mom was hysterical, and they were asking me to come in and talk to the mom at her request. She'd asked for me. So I came in to talk to this mom in the consultation room adjacent to the ER. And when I came into the room, the first thing she said was, she said, I knew I shouldn't have let her go. It was a frat party at the college. She's 15 years old. I knew I shouldn't have let her go. And of course, you want to shake mom and say, well, then why'd you let her go? But right. I didn't say that because I knew the answer. She wants to be her daughter's best friend, and a friend cannot command. Uh, I shared this story when I spoke to parents in Tampa, Florida, and afterwards a mom came up to me and she shared her story. Her daughter, 14 years old, came up to her and said, hey mom, guess what? Uh, we're all going to uh, Cancun for spring break. Uh, and mom looked at her phone and she said, why well, I can't get away that week, I'm busy. And her daughter said, I didn't say you're going. We're going, me, the girls. We're all going to Cancun for spring break. And mom said, <laughs> you're 14 years old and you're going to Cancun, Mexico? Yeah, I don't think it's safe. Uh, that's where the college kids go for spring break. And her daughter said, no, it's totally safe. We'll stay together. We'll have our phones. It's, it'll be fine. And mom said, no, you're not going. And she told me her daughter exploded, started screaming at her, shouting, saying, I hate you, I hate you. You're going to like totally ruin my whole life. And mom said, well, to be honest, sometimes I'm not so fond of you either. But <laughs> I'm your mom. And that's a job. Like any job, it has a job description. Item one in my job description is I have to keep you safe. And I know more than you do about the behavior of drunk young men. And you're 14, but you could easily pass for 18. And I don't think some drunk young man is going to stop and ask for ID. It's not safe. And you're not going. If you're doing the right thing as a parent, there will be times that you will have to say no, you're not going, and your child may be very angry with you and may say some very hurtful things. That's part of the job. Absolutely. And, you know, speaking of teenage girls for a moment, they can be particularly emotional and explosive, and it's a difficult time. And it's important to help them navigate, you know, the mood swings, but also 
let them explode, you know, and if you are protecting them from something that could be very dangerous, very harmful, um, and they're having a very severe emotional reaction to you saying no, you know, that will pass. Um, and that can be mended. And if you have a good relationship with your child, um, that isn't something that's going to ruin the relationship. But, uh, you know, neglecting that responsibility and uh, giving uh, such a loose leash that a child who whose prefrontal cortex is not yet developed uh, properly, right? That, that only uh, ends, that uh, process only ends around age 25. So you have an adolescent who does not know how to make good decisions, whether it's, uh, you know, going to Cancun with girlfriends or whether it's staying up too late, you know, with, uh, with TikTok or with video games. So I, I really do like this message where parents can and should get, you know, be more involved and put their foot down where, where they think that the, the popular culture uh, isn't serving their child best, um, because I think that's also an issue uh, that we see today. Well, let's move on to the third factor, if we can. Uh, of course, so, of course. So again, as a family doctor, I have been seeing over the last 30 years this growing proportion of boys on medications for attention deficit disorder. And uh, reading the literature, uh, we now have 18 different studies showing that these medications, Adderall, Vyvanse, Ritalin, Concerta, Metadate, Focum, and Detrano, they damage the motivational center of the brain, the nucleus accumbens. Um, and boys are still substantially more likely, at least twice as likely as girls are to be on these medications. Um, so I was speaking to parents doing the boys a jerk talk where we go through each of the five factors. And I was sharing this research showing that these medications, the most popular medications prescribed for ADD, Adderall, Vyvanse, et cetera, damage the motivational center of the brain. And during question and answer, a father said, he said, I'm sorry, Dr. Sachs, I'm, I really have trouble with this claim you're making that these medications damage, damage the brain. He said, look, if there was any truth to that, and I interrupted him, I said, if there was any truth to that, you would have heard about this before. By someone with better credentials than me, I'm just a family doctor. Someone <laughs> like Dr. Joseph Biederman, Chief of Pediatric Psychiatry Research at Harvard Medical School. And of course, Dad had no idea when I was, where I was going with that. And I said, the same thought occurred to Senator Chuck Grassley, who at that time was chair of the United States Senate Judiciary Committee and summoned Joseph Biederman to the United States Senate uh, to ask him about this. And he said, Dr. Biederman, you've been pushing these medications hard. You have said that if a doctor prescribes Adderall or Vyvanse for a child and the parents don't promptly fill an administrator, administer that prescription, you have said that those parents should be considered for charges of criminal child neglect. Dr. Biederman, are you by chance accepting any money from the drug companies? And Dr. Biederman <laughs> said, well, yeah, certainly. And, and he, Senator Grassley said, well, can, can you tell us about how much money you've recently accepted for the drug companies that you've never publicly disclosed? He said, well, I don't know off the top of my head, maybe three, 400,000. And Senator Grassley said, uh, doctor, I want you to come back to this committee under subpoena if necessary uh, and report to us exactly how much money you have recently accepted for the drug companies that you have not disclosed. And he came back a few weeks later and said it was $1.8 million. That number wow. was never independently verified. Uh, 
but that's what Dr. Biederman admitted to. Uh, he broke no law. There's no law in the United States except against doctors accepting any amount of money for the drug companies. His action was not illegal, but it was unethical, in my opinion. He should have told us that he was getting a lot more money for the drug companies than he was getting from Harvard. He should have told us that he was acting as a paid spokesperson for the drug companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he didn't. And and then Senator Grassley brought in all these other leaders. Uh, one was director of the national uh, of the NIMH, the National Institute of Mental Health, arguably the most prestigious appointment an American psychiatrist can hold. And he asked him, have you accepted uh, money? And he said, yeah. Do you know how much? Yeah, I know exactly how much. It's just over $1.5 million. And he said, didn't you think you had some obligation to disclose that? You're on national public radio. You've got a program on national public radio. Don't you think you should begin the program by saying look, I get a lot more money from the drug companies than I do from NPR. And he said, certainly <laughs> not. And Senator Grassi said, why? why? Why didn't you feel any obligation to disclose that? And he said, because all the leaders in our field do that. And that was the most troubling line. Here, the leader of the National Institute of Mental Health is telling us that all the leaders of child psychiatry in the United States take millions of dollars from the drug companies and don't tell us about it. That's really troubling. Uh, right. Um, Another word in, for that is corruption. Well, kids in the United States are much more likely to be on medication for ADD than kids elsewhere. A kid, a kid in the United States is 14 times more likely to be on medication for ADD compared to a kid in England. And I present those numbers with the breakdown in my book, The Collapse of Parenting. I wrote a book for a French publisher, titled Pourquoi les garçons perpères les fils se en danger? And working with colleagues in France, I learned that in all of France, there are fewer than 6,000 kids on medication for ADD in all of France, a nation of 67 million people. There's more kids in Philadelphia on medication for ADD than there are in all of France. Uh, Why is that? It's because in the United States and Canada, medication is the first resort. Let's try Adderall and see if it helps. Outside North America, medication is the last resort resort. And I spoke on this topic in Munich. German is my one and only language. And uh, uh, people there, the, the parents know all about the dangers of these medications. And the doctors absolutely do. But in the United States and Canada, they don't. Uh, so uh, uh, in this country, in the United States and in Canada, medication is the first resort. If your child is diagnosed with ADD uh, and they want to put them on medication, I encourage you to share your copy of Voice Adrift with the doctor and say, doctor, are you aware of these 18 studies showing that these medications damage the motivational center of the brain? And I can guarantee you in the United States and Canada, they'll say, no, I never heard of that. I was at a CME conference at Harvard and they never mentioned it. Well, yeah. Uh, uh, led by the renowned Dr. Joseph Biederman, who died uh, recently, and he's still on the Harvard Medical School website. There's no mention of his death, and it still refers to him as the renowned Dr. Joseph Biederman, uh, uh, with no mention either of the fact that he's dead or the fact that he accepted millions of dollars from the drug companies that he never disclosed. Uh, most American, most Canadian doctors are not aware of this research. Uh, medication should be the last resort, not the first resort uh, because these medications are dangerous. Absolutely. I think 
a lot of parents don't realize how severe, how intense these drugs are. And you know, I would just suggest to parents who uh, are thinking of putting their children on ADHD medication, try a pill yourself and see how you like it, how you feel and how you know, how much of a speed no, it is, a stimulant. I think that's terrible advice. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> They'll terrible. like it? It's, it's, why? Oh, it's terrible, <laughs> terrible advice because it's very likely the parent will say, well, this is great. I got to get some of this stuff. No, I, I have a hard time believing that. So I had the privilege of speaking at Harvard at a conference uh, titled Learning and the Brain. And my talk was on why gender matters, sex differences in the brain, and how those sex differences inform best practice in the classroom. And I wish I could tell you that my presentation was the buzz of the conference, but it wasn't. <laughs> the, the presentation everyone was really excited about was by Dr. John Gabrielli from MIT, who somehow got permission to give Adderall, an ADD medication, amphetamines, to normal kids and to withhold medication from kids with severe ADD and then studied how well kids learned in both groups, normal kids on Adderall and kids with ADD off medication. And he found that the medication boosts achievement, boosts attention, boosts concentration and focus in normal kids more than it does in kids with ADD. These medications are more helpful for kids without ADD than they are for kids with ADD. That's an immensely important finding. For a number of reasons. First of all, for many years, the drug companies have been claiming that these medications are specific, that they're more helpful for kids with ADD than for kids without ADD. They never had a shred of evidence to support that, and we now have very good evidence that that's not true. These medications help normal kids, kids without ADD, as much or more than they help kids with ADD. And here's the other reason it's so important. So often, I have done a formal evaluation of a child, and I've said to the parents, look, your kid does not meet the five criteria for ADD. doesn't even come close. He does not have ADD. And the parents will say, yeah, but the other, day, other doctor gave him Vyvanse and it was so helpful. It really helped. It really boosted his achievement. The parents are interpreting the response to medication as though the response to medication had some diagnostic significance. This medication, right. Adderall Vyvanse, was prescribed for ADD. It was very helpful. Teacher called first day and said, wow, what a difference. I had no idea Justin was so clever. It was clearly immensely helpful. Therefore, he must have ADD. It was prescribed for ADD. It helped. Therefore, he's ADD, right? Wrong. The research by Dr. Gabrielli and many others now shows that's not true. These medications help kids without ADD as much or more than they help kids with ADD. They help them concentrate and focus. They boost their achievement in the classroom. They compensate for the sleep deprivation. Uh, they're uppers. They make you happy. What's not to like? Why not put all the kids on Medicaid? Well, the reason not to put all the kids on medication is because these medications damage the motivational center of the brain. And we have, look, if a kid truly has ADD, they're going to need a Medicaid. There are safer medications like Wellbutrin, Stratera, and Tunib, which I explore and talk about. Why are they not more widely used if they're safer and they're effective? Well, I'll tell you why. So kid comes to me. Yeah, he truly has ADD. He's not just sleep deprived. He truly has ADD. He's going to need our medication. Let's start Stratera, 18 milligrams. After a month, no improvement. Okay, let's bump it up to 25 milligrams. Another month, still no improvement. Okay, let's bump it up to 40 milligrams. At this point, the parent says, hey, Dr. Sachs, your medication has done 
exactly nothing, hasn't been of any value after two months. The other doctor could put my the neighbor kid on Vyvanse, and he was doing much better on day one. These medications are much less popular because they are slow. They take months to start working. They have to be titrated up over a period of months. Vyvanse, you take it, first dose Monday morning. Monday afternoon, you get a call from the teacher saying how great it is. <laughs> That's the main reason they're not well known. If, peer, if, if doctors are not aware of the risks, why not prescribe the medication that works on day one rather than the medication that takes three months? If doctors are aware of the risk, I can say to the parent, yeah, I know Vivant's going to work off overnight. And this won't. This is going to take months to kick in. But this medication will not damage the brain in the way that Vivant, Adderall, Concerta, Metadate clearly do. And then the parent's fine. They're not aware of the dangers. And that's why I tie these points together, why the corruption, to use your word, it's a strong word, but I think it's warranted, why the corruption uh, uh, led by the drug industry in this country, uh, and I don't primarily blame the drug industry, I blame, blame the doctors. Uh, look, if, if, a, if a drug company offered me a million dollars, I would take it. I'm not, I'm not, but I would be honest about it. I would say, look, most of my money's coming from the drug companies. I'm a spokesperson for the drug company. And make your case. You can make your case, but you need to be honest about where the money's coming from. These doctors were not honest. That's the problem. I, I do just want to say about the ADHD medication that, you know, you said that it makes people happy. And that's definitely true at the beginning. But the mm -hmm. issue is that over time, it zaps any motivation that you feel off it. And it wears off, you know, the withdrawal effects that you feel yeah. every day in the evening. Yeah. That's all really true, but, but I, was, I was pushing back when you said to parents, try it once. Trying it once is a bad idea because that first time you take it, you'll be, uh, many, you, you'll be like, whoa, I got so much energy. This is great. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what I'm thinking. When you are talking to parents of a five-year-old, that their five-year-old is a little rowdy and the school is telling them, put the child on ADHD medication or he's expelled. I think that a parent of a five-year-old who takes this drug and feels like they're on cocaine for six hours will think again whether their five-year-old needs that drug on a daily basis, even if it felt amazing. You know, there's, there's certain things that uh, children do not need to be exposed to, and uh, that kind of psychiatric medicine uh, really, really affects brain chemistry and has long-term effects on these systems, as you said. So yes, let's move on to the fourth a factor, endocrine disruptors, which you have shown are really having significant hormonal changes in boys and men. So what are you seeing? Yeah. So uh, we've got a lot of research, which I cite in that chapter of Boys Adrift, showing that sperm counts have dropped uh, by uh, roughly half across the developed world over the last 50 years. Uh, testosterone levels have uh, fallen uh, dramatically. As recently as 1996, uh, only about 4% of young men, uh, men in their 20s, met the criterion for hypogonadism. Hypogonadism means testosterone level in a man less than 300 nanograms per deciliter. Uh, but uh, the latest research shows that more than 20% of men now have uh, 
testosterone levels less than 300. So a quintupling uh, in in just a, in less than 20 years was that study. Um, uh, testosterone levels have declined greatly. And why does this matter? It matters because men rely on testosterone for motivation. And I cite 10 different studies in Boise Adrift showing that when you look at young men who are hardworking and, and high achieving, they have much higher testosterone levels than men who are lazy. Uh, this is not true for women. And we have studies where people have done exactly the same thing, looked at hormone levels in, in women. Women do not rely on testosterone or any hormone. You can't do a blood test and make any guess about whether a woman is motivated or not. Highly motivated, hardworking women do not differ in levels of any hormone from women who are lazy and unmotivated, but men do. Men rely on testosterone for motivation. And when testosterone levels drop, motivation drops. And uh, where, where, why, why are testosterone levels dropping? They're dropping because of endocrine disruptors. Endocrine disruptors are substances in foods we eat, uh, liquids we, we drink. So a uh, clear plastic bottle is made of polyethylene terephthalate. I wrote a scholarly paper for the National Institutes of Health uh, showing that uh, the, that clear plastic is a source of endocrine disruptors, specifically a diethylhexophthalate, uh, that, that acts in the body like a female hormone. So when girls, when boys are drinking water from plastic bottles or soda from plastic bottles or consuming uh, ketchup or mustard or condiments uh, or pasta sauce that was packaged in plastic, they are consuming substances that act in their bodies like female hormones. What happens when kids consume substances that act like female hormones? Well, the answer differs depending if you're talking about a girl compared with a boy. With a girl, you're going to get an earlier onset of puberty. More than half of American girls under 10 years of age now begin the process of puberty prior to 10 years of age. And that greatly increases the risk of anxiety and depression as teenagers, greatly increases the risk of aggressive breast cancer in adulthood. And of course, that's a focus of my book, Girls on the Edge. Uh, it doesn't affect their motivation because girls don't rely on hormones for motivation. But when you feed female hormones, substances that act like female hormones to boys, you get a decline in testosterone levels, you get decline in motivation, and it's very easy to fix. And again, in Boys Adrift, I outlined, don't buy anything shipped in plastic unless it was shipped refrigerated uh, because that bottled water was shipped in a plastic container that sat in a truck in direct sunlight. And even on a cold day, a direct uh, in direct sun, the temperature in the truck can easily exceed 110 degrees Fahrenheit in a closed truck. And at that temperature, that dioxothalate in the, in the plastic will leak into the contents of that bottle. And your son is consuming substances that act like, like uh, female hormones. Yeah, but don't be discouraged. This is very easy to turn around in a short time. Uh, and, and I said a, 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 a very fun book called Slow Death by Rubber Duck by two Canadian journalists <laughs> who had uh, read this research and wondered, could they turn it around? So for a month, they made a, a real effort not to consume any condiment, uh, ketchup, mustard that was shipped in plastic, to eat only whole foods, not to use uh, shampoos that have 
uh, phthalates in them to to use natural organic shampoos, uh, and it's very easy to find to find these things. The Environmental Working Group (EWG) has a website called Skin Deep, where you just say what you're looking for, and they'll give you 50 brands that have none of these endocrine disruptors in them. Uh, and in one month, their testosterone levels normalize. Uh, so it is, it is, it is, it is very simple to fix this. You just have to be aware of what you're doing. And a lot of parents think they're doing their kid a favor by giving them this bottled water. You're not. Pour tap water into a steel canteen. And, and that's what I do. Uh, and, and it's actually cheaper than buying bottled water. It's better for the environment. Uh, and as I said, it, it costs nothing. Uh, so if you understand the concerns, it's it's an easy problem to fix, but it is clearly one of the five factors. It's crazy how our environment, uh, you know, these things that we've introduced into our lives can completely impact our biology. And it's heartening to know that we can do something about it. Uh, since mm -hmm. I read your book, I started uh, buying, you know, glass uh, bottled ketchup and things like that because yeah. you really don't realize that these things to to sterilize them you know they they really heat the the ketchup or whatever it That's is right uh, they heat yeah. it up and then the plastic seep in and you know plastic lining on paper cups uh, not to ruin mm -hmm. everybody's starbucks latte uh, you know but if you do have uh, some sort of to-go cup uh that's green that's probably a better or well i have found in in england scotland germany switzerland uh when you go to the coffee shop they serve you with a real coffee cup made of porcelain mm -hmm. uh it's in the united states and canada that you always get these plastic cups Backer. so your last the last factor in your book focuses on forsaken gods right the revenge of the forsaken god <laughs> exactly exactly and uh, as uh, forsaken gods do, uh, you know, they, you can't forget uh, the gods without them, uh, you know, coming back with a vengeance. And in this case, we're talking about masculinity. You know, mm -hmm. we're talking about masculine role models, uh, initiation uh, ceremonies or, or yeah. rituals. I always like to credit my patient, Anders Ekloff, an uh, uh, anthropologist with a deep knowledge of the anthropology literature. And he and I were talking about this boys drift phenomenon, and he was talking about how so many cultures in sub-Saharan Africa, in the, the South Pacific, uh, a boy does not automatically become a man just as a matter of maturation. He has to earn it. Uh, these cultures, very far apart, they never heard of each other, but they have these rituals. A boy must uh, endure, must must achieve uh, uh in order to earn the right to be called a man. And there are some men uh, in these cultures who are 40 years of age, but they failed. They never made it. And so they're still addressed as boys. They're not allowed to marry or to own property because they didn't earn it. Um, and uh, many anthropologists have observed that there's nothing comparable for women. I mean, there are many cultures like the Navajo have a kinolda, that, that celebrates the moment when a girl has her first menstrual period. But any woman who has a menstrual period will experience that. Uh, you don't earn it. Uh, men have to earn it. They have to fight for it. It has to be achieved. And in these cultures, in the South Pacific and Sub-Saharan Africa, 
the parents will offer sacrifices to the gods, to propitiate the gods, to ask the job, God, help my son to make it, to, to, to succeed, to earn it, to earn the right to be called a man. Well, we no longer do that. We, we ignore it. Uh, and hence the title of that chapter, The Revenge of the Forsaken Gods. A, a simpler title might be The Decline and Collapse in the Social Construction of Masculinity. What does it mean mm-hmm. to be a man? You know, 50 years ago, the culture taught it. Even if the parents never mentioned it, uh, an American boy in a, uh, would have been immersed in the culture of, of, uh, uh, Paul Newman or, or Sidney Poitier or Gary Cooper, uh, that taught him this is what it means to be a man. It means to be courageous. It means to stand up for the weak, the weak. It means to, uh, be willing to put others before yourself. Um, I spoke at Wabak, which is uh, one of the few remaining all men's colleges in uh, North America, in Crawfordsville, Indiana. And at the invitation of the leaders, I was speaking to all the freshmen. So I said to them, what does it mean to be a gentleman? And Hmm. one of the boys raised his hand and I called on him. He said, being a gentleman means going to gentlemen's clubs and watching women take their clothes off. I said, okay, that was very funny. Now, can anyone offer a more serious definition? Another kid says it means wearing a three-piece suit. It means opening the door for women. It's all superficial. But I, I don't blame them. How should they know if they have received no instruction? The uh, So in, in writing, um, I, it's, it's in the collapse of parenting. Uh, I looked at the 150 most popular TV shows in the United States to find how many of them uh, consistently have a parent who is knowledgeable, competent, reliable. You know, in the 1960s, shows mm-hmm. like My Three Sons or The Andy Griffith Show, uh, even in the 1980s, shows like Family Ties uh, uh, or The Cosby Show, the father is knowledgeable, competent, reliable, thoughtful, productive, caring, and kind. Uh, how many of the most popular shows today are like that? Out of 150 shows, I found one, Blue Blood, starring Tom Selleck, where the father is at mm-hmm. least occasionally knowledgeable and competent. That show is now a unique outlier in American entertainment, uh, much more... Uh, Typical show would be Modern Family, where the straight dad is consistently an idiot whose bungling antics (laughs) are the butt of the joke. We're expected to laugh at him. His kids are usually wiser and more insightful than their idiot dad. The collapse in the social construction of masculinity. We don't, we don't live in the culture of, uh, uh, the Andy Griffith show or Family Ties or Simon and Garfunkel. Uh, we live in the culture of Drake, Bruno Mars, uh, uh, which is all about di- being disrespectful. Uh, Akon, Eminem. Uh, and the result is that boys, in order to become a good man, a boy must see a good man. And boys are immersed in a toxic culture that undermines. You know, uh, a generation ago, Sam Cooke had a number one hit song. Don't know much about history. He's saying, now, I don't claim to be an A student, but I'm trying to be, because maybe by being an A student, baby, I could win your love for me. He goes on to mention French, geometry, and trigonometry as subjects in which he's going to try harder to earn an A rather than a B, because he believes that by earning an A, he can raise his status in the eyes of the pretty girl. And that was characteristic of English-speaking culture 
a generation ago. Uh, that was a number one hit song in the United States. Think about Drake, Bruno, Bruno Mars, Eminem. Can you imagine any of them singing a song about trying hard to earn an A in geometry? No, it's a joke. Uh, uh, Bruno Mars earned six Grammys for his song, That's What I Like, where he's addressing a young woman he appears not to know and offers her diamonds, uh, a shopping spree in Paris, uh, if she will just okay. turn around and drop it for a player because that's what I like. He's offering money for sex. Uh, that's what I mean by the collapse in the construction of masculinity. That was an, that was not only a number one hit song. It, it won six Grammys, including the Grammy for best song. So the recording academy is saying, yes, that's the best we have to offer. Money for sex, turn around and drop it for a player because that's what I like. That's the culture that boys who speak English at home are immersed in. Um, and, you, the parent, have to create, have to find an alternative culture. Yeah, it has to begin in the home. And I start on that topic in Boys Adrift. I continue on that topic in The Collapse of Parenting. How do you create a culture of respect in the home when your kid is immersed in a culture of disrespect, the culture of YouTube and TikTok and the most popular songs which teach kids that it's cute and funny to be disrespectful? How do you create a different culture of respect how do you find good men, whether they're coaches or scout leaders, who can be good role models for your son? You must do this uh, because your son is immersed in a toxic culture, uh, very different from the culture of even 30 years ago, a, a culture that now is teaching boys that it's cute and funny to be dis defiant and disrespectful. Right. And this culture, I think, is really important to understand that, you know, as Parents today, we can't let the culture raise our children. And we have to, you know, think about what values we want to instill. And the thing is with masculinity is it doesn't go away. If you don't have a healthy version of masculinity, then unhealthy versions will pop up. And Absolutely we've seen right. that happen. Yep. And we've got men like Andrew working. Tate right now who have huge exactly. problems among young men because, again, boys have this will to power. And Andrew Tate is saying, yeah, exercise that will to power, beat up on the woman. That's what she wants. And some boys are like, wow, this is great. If you don't teach boys to be gentlemen, you get Andrew Tate. You get boys who want to be monsters. I will say, I will say just on that topic of um, men need to find their strengths. Men need to develop you know, the monster that Jordan Peterson is talking about and to be able to discipline that because a man, you know, who's, as you said, 32 years old playing video games and he is feeling that strength and that power only in that virtual realm. And he hasn't developed that strength, that backbone, that ability to, you know, stand with your uh, shoulders back and to face the world. And if you don't, give men that self-confidence and they earn that self-confidence uh you know through hard work it's not just self-esteem all day and if you don't give that to men then they're aimless and they find themselves addicted to whether it's video games drugs or just completely unmotivated and lost uh so these these um you know examples of healthy masculinity 
men are going to be looking for them. They're hungry for them. And I really do see a positive trend, you know, putting uh, the Andrew Tates of the world aside. I do see, uh, you know, an emerging awareness of this issue. And a lot of great men are speaking out on this as you are. Um, and just uh, to wrap up, where can people find more of your work, more of uh, your great books? Uh, where should they go look to find you? Uh, I'd ask that you go to my website, leonardsachs.com, L-E-O-N-A-R-D-S-A-X.com. And there you'll find links to all the essays I've, I've written, all of which are available at no charge. And you can also email me through the website. And I do try to respond to every email I get. And you'll also find lists of all the workshops that I offer for schools on Boys Adrift, on creating a boy-friendly school, or Why Gender Matters, gender-aware instruction, in all the content areas. Uh, so LeonardSachs.com, I hope you take a look, and I hope we'll be in touch. Wonderful. Thank you, Leonard, so much. Thanks again for inviting me.